morning, Chili Bible. Glad y'all are here uh, this morning. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed your worship so far this morning. You know, we uh, we gather together and we study God's Word together, and, and I, I get to do that part. But you know, I also really enjoy the uh, the part of our, our worship service when we are declaring the Lord's glory in song and in prayer and in um, making offer, our offerings to the Lord. Um, I like that part. I hope you're encouraged by it each week as you come. Uh, I want to uh, begin our time here just in prayer. Um, Clarice Cold, uh, son, her son Randy, um, is, uh, has been stricken with cancer also. He has a variety of places in his body that it has uh, stricken him. And um, Randy comes here to Chili Bible when he's in town. Uh, some of you may have met him, but let's pray for him also. God, our Father, we pray for Randy. Uh, we pray that, um, indeed, you would be the God of healing and of power. Uh, Father, it sounds like a very, very serious situation. And yet, Father, you are a great God far beyond the limitations of mere humanity. Uh, Father, we are made in your image, and we uh, have smart doctors. But, Father, there are situations that... Even our doctors are puzzled by. And Father, at this time, we ask for your intervention and healing in Randy's life. We pray for your deliverance of him, that he might give you praise and say, Surely the Lord intervened in my, on my behalf and healed me. And Father, we pray for that, that we might uh, also give you glory and give you praise for your intervention on his behalf. And Father, we ask this morning... As we open your word together, that by your Holy Spirit you would illumine it to us, that we would see the things that you are teaching us in your word very clearly, and submit and obey the, uh, your, to your word, and uh, follow it with all of our hearts, empowered by your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of my favorite verses of Scripture is uh, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You remember? Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew chapter 5 verse 8 uh, is part of the Beatitudes. And Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And it is a great verse to memorize. If you have not ever memorized it, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, because one of the chief struggles that we have, uh, the Apostle John identifies our struggles this way. He calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's First uh, uh, John, I think, chapter 5. And uh, one of the struggles that we have is with what we see. Amen. We see all kinds of things, and we look at them, and we desire them in a way that is, uh, is not good, and which, in fact, is sinful. And sometimes it can be something very simple like greed, or it can be just even basic discontentment with what we have as we look around and see what we have versus what other people have, and we're discontent, or we can 
have that give way to envy or to covetousness, or if it's uh, with reference to another person, sometimes it becomes sexual lust. And we see things that God has not given to us. And Jesus reminds us the pure in heart will see God. And I think that's important to remember. I think it's a good, you know, if the, if the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, and it is, this gives us a sword with which to fight against our temptations to be taken in sinfully by what we see. Amen? Because it's not that we see, it's not that, it's not that seeing things is a bad thing. I mean, no one wants to be blind. But at the same time, that our vision is misdirected many times. Amen? That instead of, instead of focusing on what we will one day see, which is the living God, we focus on all the things down here. And so Jesus' statement is a reminder, not that we want too much, but that we, what we want is actually too little. That we uh, are tempted sometimes to exchange seeing God for what we can see right now. And the sight of God, I'll assure you, I've not seen Him yet, but one day I will. And all, all those of you who follow Christ will one day see Him as well. And when you do, everything else in this life will pale in comparison. Amen? And if you're in Exodus chapter 24, that's where we are this week, what you find out is, is that there are people in the, who are part of the leaders of the nation of Israel who actually enter in God's, into God's presence and they see Him on Mount Sinai. Now, wouldn't that have been cool? Wouldn't that not have been amazing to go up on Mount Sinai with Moses and to enter into the presence of God and see Him enthroned? And they see Him. And it is amazing. As they enter into covenant with God, how this, how this happens. So I want to, and, and as they do this, there's a version, I think, of the gospel story being told in this text in chapter 24. And I want to show it to you. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. And we're going to see this, this version of the gospel story where that culminates in a vision of God Himself. Uh, let's look at it. Chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now this chapter records an ancient Israelite worship service. They have been meeting with God on, on Mount, you know, God has, has, uh, has made His presence known on Mount Sinai, and Moses has been going back and forth up the mountain. In fact, it's hard to keep track of how many trips he makes back and forth up and down the mountain, uh, telling the people what God said and telling God what people said as he serves as mediator between God and His people. And they're about to have a worship service, and every worship service begins then as well as now with what? With a call to worship. Let God's people gather and worship God. And in this case, God himself issues the call to worship. And he says, all y'all, come and worship. 
Now, some of you need to stay back because you're still in sin. And you need to stand at a distance. And Moses will mediate between me and you. But I want you to come and worship God. And you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the elders. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, if you don't know who they are, they're Aaron's two eldest sons at this point. Uh, They're later going to get into some problems in their role as priests. But we'll look at that later. Uh, But... Uh, They'll become priests under Aaron, and Aaron will become the high priest of the nation. And the 70 elders are leaders from within each of the uh, the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And so all of the key leaders of the nation are going to go up and uh, onto the mountain and worship God. But, But notice, only Moses was permitted to go into God's presence directly. None of the people can come close. And even the elders and Aaron and his sons, even though they can come closer than the people, they still have to worship at a distance from God. And only God's chosen mediator can come directly into his presence. And the reason is, is that the presence of sin in the people prevents them from being in the presence of God. Even if they want to draw near, they can't. Because God's holiness destroys sinful people. And God has to do something, therefore, to enable them to draw near. And he wants them to draw near. And he has to do something. And that, that something is covenant and sacrifice. And I want to show that to you here. Verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said... All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, when you do a wedding or when you go to a wedding, when I do a wedding, there are two parts uh, of the wedding that are really, really important. Okay? The first one is called the Declaration of Intent. And in the Declaration of Intent, you secure the couple's agreement with what they're about to do. And so you ask a question like this, Will you, Bob, take Susie to be your wife to live together in holy marriage? Do you promise to love her, to comfort her, to honor her, and to keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? If so, signify by saying, I will. And then you turn and you ask Susie the same questions, only directed to Bob as her husband rather than uh, to her as wife. And it's to ensure that each of them is willing to make the vows that they will later take, which are going to make them a married couple. Just because you've been through the declaration of intent, they're not yet married. It's only when they say their vows after they've agreed in principle to what they're about to do. And something similar is happening here in this worship service that we see with Israel. Moses comes down the mountain. He leads 
he, he re, I'm sorry, he reads all of the words of the Book of the Covenant uh, from the Ten Commandments all the way through the end of what we now have as chapter 23 with the nation. He reads it to them all, and so they can all hear it. And all the people hear all, of, all that God said, and they say, yep, we will do that. And that is their declaration of intent, if you will. And so Moses writes down all of the words that God had given uh, in the book of the covenant. And in fact, this is the first section of the Bible, if you will, that is written. That Moses wrote down the book of the covenant and preserved it so that the people would have a copy of it. And that's the first section of scripture that we read of Moses writing down. Uh, Moses uh, wrote eventually Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, but the first section that he wrote was the book of the covenant with God. So that it could be remembered and retained by everybody from generation to generation. And then the next morning, after Israel has had time to think things over and uh, make sure that they still want to do this, Moses builds an altar at the foot of the mountain. And there's no designated priesthood yet. That comes later. We'll see that happen. Uh, but there's no designated priesthood yet, so Moses gets people who are described here as the young men. It's probably the firstborn sons of the, uh, it might even be the firstborn sons of the elders of Israel, uh, but it's the firstborn sons probably of various parts of the nation, and they all serve as priests, and they offer two types of sacrifices. And these two types are both important. The first one is called a burnt offering. Now, that is not what you eat, gentlemen, when your wife is learning to cook. All right? Just be sure that you know that. All right? Uh, and don't refer to it that way, ever. Not a good idea. <laughs> All right? Um, the first one is called a burnt offering. And what you do is you take this animal and you slaughter it. And the way that they did was they would take a knife and they would cut the throat of the animal so that all the blood would drain out. And they would collect the blood in a basin. And then they would take the animal whole and they would lay it on the altar and they would burn it until it was incinerated, till it was a crispy critter. Amen? And the whole idea was that, that this entire animal is offered completely to God and that every part of it is consumed. And this was the sacrifice of atonement. This was the sacrifice for sin. And that, that this animal was completely consumed and so with it my sin was completely consumed before God. And then, after you did that, you would offer what was called a peace offering or a fellowship offering. And this is an indicator of the fact that since God has accepted my burnt offering of atonement before God, now I have peace with God. He's not mad at me anymore for my sin. And so now I have fellowship with Him. And so then what you did was you took, this, you took another animal and you slit its throat again, collected the blood... And then what you did with the fellowship offering was that you would roast it. And you would cook it until it was tender. You know, can you imagine that? You ever had one of the, like a pig roast or something where you get the big hunk of meat going around on a spit? Smell that, right? You can just taste it in your mind's eye, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right? The juice dripping down and, oh, we're going to eat this, right? And they would cook it until it was tender. Anybody else hungry? Um, 
uh, and they would cook it until it was tender, and then they would eat it in the presence of God as part of the worship service. And the idea was that we now have fellowship with God on the basis of sacrifice before God. And we have peace with Him, and we can now eat and enjoy His presence. Right? By the way, one of the ways, if I've ever in conflict with somebody, and this happens from time to time, one of the ways that I know that I am now at peace with them is when we can sit down and eat and enjoy a meal together. That's kind of one of the tests I have in my mind. If I can, you know, have them in my home and feed them, we're at peace. If they can have me over and I'm not sitting there going, right, help me Jesus, here we go, right? We're not at peace. But if we can sit down together and enjoy a meal together, we're at peace, right? And... And this is what the peace offering or the fellowship offering symbolized, that they were now, because of their covenant with God, at peace with God. And, um, and none of the blood was eaten or consumed with the offerings. Instead, what you had was that Moses collected it all, and he took half of it, and he threw it on the altar to be burned by itself. And he took half of it, and he went through the whole congregation of Israel and sprinkled blood on them. Now, that sounds kind of gross, okay? And it was. But here's the deal. This is very important because what you did when you made a covenant was actually, in Hebrew, the word is not make a covenant, it's cut a covenant. Because the the symbolism was that just like that animal died so that the covenant might be established, so if you broke the covenant you should die. Understand? And and Abraham pictured this real graphically. He took some animals when he was making his covenant with God, and he split them in half, just right down the middle. And, and And then right after his sacrifice, he falls asleep, and he has this vision of God in the form of a flaming fire pot passing between the pieces of the sacrifice. And the idea was that as God was passing through, he was saying, this is a unilateral covenant. It's not just you. with We're not peers here, Abraham. I am making a covenant with you, and I'm the one passing between the pieces. And the idea was kind of a self-cursing oath that you made, that if I break this covenant may be done to me what has been done to this animal. And so half of the blood went to God, saying that God was going to uphold His end on pain of death. And half was sprinkled on the people, which identified them with the sacrificed animals. And it's a very very serious promise that you're making as you're sprinkled with the blood. That if I don't hold up my end of the covenant then may God do to me what he has done to this animal. Now, that's the life and death nature of God's covenant. That keeping it leads to life. And disobeying it or rebelling against God and his covenant leads to death. But God also in this is making it very clear to them what the means of being forgiven when they break it is going to be. Because does the Israelites ever keep the covenant of God? Say no. (laughs) Okay. Do you perfectly obey 
the commands of God in your life? Say no. <laughs> okay? None of us ever perfectly obey the commands of God. Amen? And yet, God has made a way for us to remain at peace with Him and in relationship with Him. And the basis is the same then as now. It's on the basis of sacrifice and covenant. Amen? Now, we have a better sacrifice and a better covenant than they did in that Jesus was put to death in our place for our violation of God's covenant and God's law. Uh, But nevertheless... That is the nature of the covenant. And, and he's saying, God is saying to them, through Moses, as, as Moses is mediating the establishment of the covenant, this covenant and the keeping of it is a life and death matter. However, there is sacrifice to be offered when you break it. And you can not be struck dead. You can instead strike dead the lamb that God has provided. Now, this next part is really impressive and amazing and i want to show it to you then moses and aaron nadab and abihu and 70 of the elders went up and they saw the god of israel let me read that again in case that just went by too fast then moses and aaron nadab and abihu and 70 of the elders of israel went up and they saw the god of israel There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. I want to know what that was like. What was that like? These 74 guys see the living God, and the text does not tell us a whole lot about it other than that it happened. In fact, all that's specifically mentioned that they saw is his feet. Anybody pick pick up on that? God is not described anywhere in the text except that he has feet. And some people that have led them to the conclusion that when they saw him, that it was so glorious that that's all they then saw, okay? That they fell on their face, you know, like, he's got feet, (laughs) okay? (laughs) All right? And it was so glorious, they just, that was all they could take in, was just the feet of the living God, okay? And other people have said, no, he is actually enthroned above them like, Uh, Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1. Let me read you some of that, okay? Chapter 1 of Ezekiel, this is what Ezekiel describes. Over the heads of the living creatures. Now, now both Ezekiel describes these as well as John in Revelation describes these four living creatures. These beings with wings that encircle the throne of God. Isaiah describes them as well in Isaiah 6. And they're amazing and awesome in power. And it says, there was a likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystals spread out above their heads. And above the expanse, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne. And in appearance, it was like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. 
And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him. And Moses doesn't go into that level of detail. But if it's anything like what Ezekiel saw, seeing God is indeed, can we just all agree on this? It was an awe-inspiring, impressive sight. And Moses is very careful to note twice that none of them died as a result. And that is of note because for a sinner to enter into the presence of God is to risk death. And Moses says none of them died. Why? Because sacrifice had covered over their sin and therefore they were able to enter into the presence of God. And so they saw the Lord, and they ate and drank with Him in His presence. Now that is just amazing. How many of you would give everything you have right now to have been one of those guys? I would. In fact, I'd indebt myself for the rest of my life to do that. Right? There's more to the story. Let's read on. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Now, evidently, the text does not tell us this directly, but... Uh, There in verse 12, since it says to Moses, I want you to come up on the mountain by yourself and leave everybody else behind. After the eating and drinking happened, they must have all gone back down because Moses has got to go back up. Um, (laughs) So uh, evidently, everybody's had to go back down. But he says, come up here and I'll give you the tablets of the law which I have made. There are two tablets because when you made a covenant an ancient covenant, what you did was you made two copies of the law or of the covenant that you were making. And so God made two copies of the covenant that he had made. And rather than keep one for himself and give one to them, as was your traditional treaty, he says, I tell you what, I'll give you both of them just so you don't forget. Because I will remember what the terms of my covenant are, but you might not. And so I'm going to give you both copies And Moses, you come up and get them. And Moses leaves the elders behind, and he's going to leave Joshua somewhere midway up the mountain, but he's going to go all the way up into God's presence himself. And he enters into glory. And he leaves the elders and the other uh, rulers there um, and departs into glory. And he's in God's presence 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you look at this story closely, You read all these details, and what you see is this, that through God's chosen mediator, God brings near people whose sin kept them far off from him. That the direction of the story is from far away 
to right up close. And that God is the one who does that. He does that through his mediator. The chapter opens with God calling his people to worship him from afar. And they hear the word of the Lord through their mediator and they obey it. And they believe it and announce their intention to obey it. And then they experience atonement and peace through sacrifice, uh, the offering of a substitute through their mediator. And then they're commanded to obey God as the outgrowth of the relationship with God that they possess through the sacrifice and the peace with God that they've been given through their mediator. And then some of them are called into even deeper fellowship with God and they see his glorious presence. And then the mediator departs into glory for a while and will later return. Now what does that sound like? That sounds a whole lot like the salvation that we have in Christ as believers today. That we were, as Paul says, you who were once aliens and strangers, you who were far off, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Amen? That we who were separated from God by our sin, we had a mediator who came, the one mediator, the one man, Jesus Christ. Amen? And he came. And in the midst of our rebellion, and in the midst of our sin, and in the midst of our treason, and our running away from God, and in the midst of our separation from God, and in the midst of not being able to draw near to Him because our sin keeps us at a distance from Him, He sends Jesus, who is the true and better mediator than Moses. Amen? And this mediator, Jesus Christ, calls us to worship God, who gave him who gave himself the word and revealed God to us remember Jesus says if you look at me you've seen God and so even though Moses carried God's word Jesus spoke God's word and was God's word and so he calls us into relationship with God through himself through the giving of the word the same way that God's people received the word through Moses. They received, we received the word through Jesus. He is the word, and he comes to us. And then, in response to the Holy Spirit's regenerating work in our lives, we respond in faith, and we declare our intention to obey God's word, and we vow to follow him. Amen? That's what conversion is. That in response to the Holy Spirit's regenerating work in your life, that you put your trust in the word that God has given to you, and you make your vow to follow him. If you confess, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you, can, you, know, you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? Because it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth you confess and are saved, Right? So just it's the same two-step process just like with the people of Israel of believing God's word and then confessing God's word and agreeing to God's word and committing to obey it as a result of the relationship. And as a result of that, we are saved by the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. 
And as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, we have what? We have atonement for sin and peace with God. We have peace with God and atonement for sin, both through the blood of Christ, and we now have fellowship with God. And, in a, in, and here's another way that Jesus is a better mediator than Moses. In Moses' day, only part of the people get to go up into the presence of God. But do you know what happens with Jesus? Blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. How do you become one of the pure in heart? By believing in Jesus Christ and having His atoning sacrifice applied to your life so that you have atonement for sin and peace with God. And then God's Holy Spirit purifies your heart and you will one day see God. And I will see Him. And guess what? I read the end of the book, and guess what it describes? It describes this amazing feast. Jesus says, he tells his disciples, I won't drink any more of the fruit of the vine until I come back and drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. We're going to have eating and drinking and a party in the presence of God. Does that not thrill your heart? If it doesn't, it should. Okay? And if, and if you just kind of go, hum, 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 yeah, okay, yeah, that's exciting. Okay? Wake up! This is the good part! <laughs> okay? This is as good as it gets. We're going to enter into the presence of God and eat and drink with Him. And on top of that, you know, just like Moses was taken up into glory for a while and then he went back down to the people, Jesus was taken up into glory for a little while and then he's coming back and he's taking us to the party into the glorious presence of God. I'm so excited about this. I got so excited about this on Friday as so I was writing it. I was telling Katie I just couldn't even get the words out of my mouth fast enough. I was like, this is going to be so great. i got to tell people about this. This is awesome. What is going to happen to us? And if you are a person who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ, can I invite you to do that today so that you have the confidence that when you shut your eyes for the last time that you will open them and see the living God. And if you've never done that, this is how you do it. It's real simple, okay? Today is the day, first of all, and God is calling you to worship Him. And He wants to bring you into His very presence. And though you might feel, and in fact, though you are very far off indeed from God, here is the great part. He promises to bring you near to Him through Jesus Christ. And if you have a desire to be near to God, it is from the Holy Spirit who is calling you to worship God and who is saying to you, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in His sacrifice that He died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And then, following that, as, a, as an outgrowth of your 
than relationship with God, follow Jesus and all of His commands. And if you have accepted that message and declared in your heart your intention to follow Jesus and with your own mouth confessed Him as Lord, you have received salvation through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. That you have believed what God said about Jesus. That He is the atoning sacrifice. That through Him you do have peace with God. And you will one day see the Lord. Just as He promised. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, can I invite you to just praise God today for these things? Because this is glorious and good stuff. In fact, it doesn't get any better than this. As I've said before, compared with Christianity and the promises that it makes to those who follow Jesus, everything else on earth is, compared, is, is comparable to like a tricycle next to a Mercedes. There is no comparison between Jesus Christ and what he promises to give his people and everything else that is out there. There isn't anything that holds a candle to Jesus. And therefore, one day, think about this. One day we're going to stand on that clear sapphire pavement. And we're going to look upon him who is seated on the throne, whose appearance is like gleaming metal and burning fire. And we will gather with the four living creatures and we will see them flying about the throne, calling out to one another, as Isaiah said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And we will feel how their voices shake the foundations of the earth. And we will stand with the elders and the apostles and the people of God around the throne of God. People from every tongue and language and tribe and nation. And we will all call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And it will be amazing. And you know what today is? Today is practice for that day. So let's pray, and then let's practice giving glory to the Lord God Almighty. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the visions of Your presence that the Scripture gives us over and over and over, and the mighty promises that we have that in Jesus Christ we will indeed stand before Your throne and we will see You and worship You and be amazed at your greatness and glory for all eternity. And Father, we pray that today as we practice and get ready for that day, that you will be exalted and honored and glorified by the lips and hearts of your people. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.